آزادی بیان یعنی لون زیو فری سپیچ ویلکم تو دی لانچ اف فری سپیچ دیبیت ا ریسرچ پروژیکت بیلت اراند دیس ویب سایت ام ا ویلکم تو ایوریون ان دی روم بٹ آلسو ویلکم تو دوز واچنگ اس آنلاین If you want to tweet anything about it, the Twitter hashtag is FSDLaunch. Um, this is a project to promote, to stimulate a global debate on free expression in the age of the internet. Uh, it's a bold attempt to use the internet. And so it's particularly fitting we have with us someone who a decade ago started an even bolder attempt to use the internet for the dissemination of online knowledge, uh, what became Wikipedia, which as you know, blacked out yesterday, uh, causing millions of students <laughs> horror as their essay deadlines approached. Fortunately, it's back now. It was blacked out in protest at two bills going through the US Congress, uh, the Stop Online Piracy Act and the Protect Intellectual Property Act, SOPA and PIPA, the Ugly Sisters, not to be confused with PIPA. <laughs> and we will clearly come to that subject. Uh, because it is central to what we want to talk about today. But before we do, we're going to do a couple of other things. First of all, I'm going to talk briefly about this project, uh, get a quick reaction from Jimmy Wales on global free speech in the Internet age. We have a message from Shirin Abadi, who unfortunately cannot be with us because of an important meeting about Iran in Switzerland. And then we're going to dig a bit deeper on one of our five draft principles on the website, we al allow no taboos in the discussion and dissemination of knowledge, which goes straight to Wikipedia. So first of all, what's the project? The starting point of this project, if I had to say it with great exaggeration, and simplification is the fact that we are all neighbors now. If we live in big cities, we live cheek by jowl with people from numerous other countries, religions, cultures. Online, some two billion people are connected. Another up roughly two billion people are connected on mobile phones. So that's a potential four billion people who are neighbors. That's a huge opportunity for global free expression. But it's also a challenge because global free speech, free speech altogether, does not simply mean that anyone can say anything they like. It's not global logoria. It has limits. It has habits. It has norms. In the past, these were set by sovereign powers. In modern history, mainly by states. If you were in 
the United States, you had the First Amendment. If you were in India, you had Indian law, and so on. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. That has, to a considerable extent, broken down in the world we're describing. Not entirely. A powerful, determined, authoritarian state like Iran or China can actually impose considerable control on what its citizens can see or hear or express. But even they can only do that at great expense and with great difficulty. In more normal, more freer countries, the frontiers are permeable. Ideas, information flow across those frontiers, in addition to which, whereas in the past it was states, public powers, which defined the terms, now it's increasingly private powers as well. What Google does is much more important than what Germany does. What Facebook does is much more important than what France does in this world. So they're both public and private powers, and of course individuals can express themselves and create communities online. So we think that what we need is a conversation about what should be the rules of the game, about what academics call norms, about the underlying principles, not the precise laws which will vary from state to state, which are the classic concern of much free speech literature about the underlying principles. And what we have to start the conversation is these 10 draft principles which have been hashed out, thrashed out, debated by free speech experts, lawyers, philosophers, theologians, journalists, netizens over the last few years, debated again by our formidable team of more than 30 graduate students and researchers, native speakers of 30 languages, to produce a proposition on the table for what the underlying norms for global free expression should be, for debate, for revision. Let me say at once that under the, at the bottom, we ask what's missing, and we already have one strong suggestion from Sandra Colliver that there should be a separate principle on the public's right to information held by public bodies. So for example, P1, we all human beings must be free and able to express ourselves and to receive and impart information and ideas, regardless of frontiers. You will recognize that is a version, a simplified version, of the famous Article 19 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which is the legal foundation stone, um, but formulated in the we form. That's to say, this is something we want. And also with the addition of one important word, not just free, but able, able in practice to express ourselves. So there's Article 19. Just to remind you, this is a study by Jeff Howard of what, who signed up to Article 19. The vast majority of the states in the world have actually signed and ratified Article 19. China has signed but not ratified. It's honored very often, of course, in the breach. They have a lot of reservations. We go into that. But nonetheless, it is there as a global legal norm. But what does it mean in practice? How should it be realized? We have on this one, as on all the others, a series of case studies um, to explore that. For example, how about being able to speak in your own language? 
Kurdish and Turkey Turks and Bulgaria is hunger struck form of free expression. Does money have the right to speak? The Citizens United verdict at the Supreme Court in the US suggests that it does, that corporations have free speech rights. And this runs through the whole architecture of the site. So that, just to give another example, P8, we are all entitled to a private life which should accept such scrutiny as is in the public interest. There is the introduction. You can vote. And we have Max Mosley speaking entertainingly about his experience of a very private orgy, but also actually rather interestingly about the difference between privacy and reputation. And so it goes on through the sites. We will be producing a lot more case studies. We will be inviting users online to suggest case studies. On P10, we have Arundhati Roy, Khaled Fami talking uh, respectively from India and Egypt. This content will be unfolded in 13 languages. Here is, just to give you a sense of it, the, there's Jimmy Wales in Chinese, if you wanted to know. There's the Chinese front page with the Chinese principles. The languages are Arabic, Chinese, English, Farsi, French, German, Hindi, Japanese, Portuguese, Russian, Spanish, Turkish, and Urdu. We estimate that covers, makes the site linguistically accessible, and I stress linguistically accessible, to more than 80% of the world's online population, because actually the online population is heavily skewed to a few larger languages. Um, linguistically accessible is not the same as politically accessible or technically accessible, but nonetheless, that content has been translated by our amazing team of graduate students at Oxford, native speakers of these 13 languages. Beyond that, you can go on a thread to discuss a principle or a case study or a discussion line, uh, and you will have a multilingual comment thread. And then, if you don't understand the other person's language, you click Google Translate and hey presto, an invariably perfect translation will come up. <laughs> so what do we hope to achieve? Four things initially. First of all, we want to see if it is possible to have an open, informed, civilized debate on this extremely sensitive, indeed explosive subject, across cultures, languages, religions, countries. Are what we seek, we try to sum up in the phrase, robust civility. Is it possible? In theory, the internet gives one that possibility. Many doubt it in practice, and there are many, many experiments that have gone absolutely pear-shaped. So that's the first thing, to see if it is possible with careful post-moderation and above all encouraging positive contributions. And I know, Jimmy, you have much experience of that. Secondly, building on the work of a lot of organizations and people, some of them in this room, 
to map out a kind of map of the range of concerns about free speech across the world, the hopes and fears in different countries and cultures, to bring in these new case studies, to see, if possible, where the big areas of disagreement are, but also where perhaps there are quite large areas of consensus. Now, one obvious area of disagreement is going to be this one, the principle on free speech and religion. We respect the believer, but not necessarily the content of the belief. A demanding principle for many people in the world, interestingly enough, difficult to translate into Urdu and Arabic, because we find there is no generic word for the believer. There is only the Muslim and the infidel. So already in the translation, you have a hint of the problem. We have here already a fascinating contribution from a leading Iranian reformist theologian, Mohsen Kadivar, someone who actually did time in Iran for criticizing the Velayat al-Fakir, the, the, the Islamic dictatorship. On the one hand, incredibly liberal for an Islamic theologian, saying there should be complete freedom for criticism of religion. On the other hand, demanding the criminalization of the insult of religion. So how do we draw the line between insult and criticism? Um, so of course, that exploration cannot be representative. It can only be indicative, but we hope it will be interesting. Thirdly, we hope to clarify how these norms might be formulated. Of course, we will not get agreement. That is self-evident. And it'd be a pretty dull world if we did. But we hope to clarify what perhaps are or perhaps should be universal standards. For example, there is one area where both those criteria are met, and that is pedophilia and child pornography, where almost every state and almost every private power and most people agree. Google, for example, proactively filters pedophile child pornography content, I think about the only area it does. Um, are there others? This, of course, allows for a good deal of variety also in cultural norms. So we're also looking for the distinction between the first order principle, which should be a universal standard. For example, I would submit RP6. We neither make threats of violence nor accept violent intimidation, carefully balanced. Both neither make the threats nor accept violent intimidation should be a fundamental universal standard, a precondition for global free expression. But for example, the norms for public nudity vary widely from country to country. And why not? They vary widely indeed from European country to European country, with Germany leading the field. <laughs> the right to streak, it seems to me, is not self-evidently on the same level as the right to speak. So what we're looking for is indeed some universals, but it's a complex universalism. We're also hoping to clarify here 
how these norms might be realized, not just in the law of states, but for example, by social media or major other online players. We'll have an event in this very lecture hall on the February the 20th, where we'll be able to question the public policy director of Facebook in Europe about their privacy norms and privacy settings. Uh, something in many ways much more important than what most countries do in their privacy laws. And so it goes on. We hope, of course, also to look for norms and principles which self-governing or self-regulating communities, online and offline, can give themselves. For me, what I call the wiki nations, these amazing self-regulating communities of Wikipedia editors in different languages. So Wikipedia has ma managed to reunite Britain, Canada, and the United States in one wiki nation. Uh, Brazil and Portugal, even more demanding. They're the examples of kind of self-regulating, self-governing communities, but also, last but not least, simply the free speech standards that individuals want to give themselves and try to abide by and then to realize as citizens and as netizens. And fourthly, we hope that if this proves to be as interesting a debate uh, as we trust it will be, with a combination of commissioned content from around the world and user-generated content for expertise and openness, that it will become an online educational and civic resource. It will be digitally archived by the Bodleian Library in this, unity, in this university, a historic library, but very much keeping up with the times. So that, in very brief telegraphic summary, is our experiment it is, as you will see, a huge experiment. We don't quite know where it will go, but we're excited to be starting the journey. Jimmy, your comments. Great. Um, well, it's, uh, it's, I think it's a fabulous uh, concept uh, for a website and for a community of people. Uh, I think one of the challenges that you get into uh, in this, in this type of community is that um, is drawing in a diverse enough crowd uh, so that you really get a thoughtful debate on issues. Um, a lot of the people who are keenly interested uh, in issues of free speech are going to be people like me, who are very strong advocates of free speech. Uh, and a lot of the people who would argue in favor of uh, much stricter regulations on speech um, may come from communities that are uh, very deeply traditionally religious and so forth and actually aren't that interested in the topic of freedom of speech. So uh, I think that's going to be one of the, the interesting challenges. But I, I think it is uh, something that can be overcome. Uh, and I think one of the things that the community members should be encouraged to do uh, is to spend some time writing uh, the you know, writing up the position of people who want to, for example, uh, ban cartoons uh, that uh, uh, mock uh, Muhammad, try to write their position up as a community in a thoughtful way, in a respectful way, trying to sort of put yourself in the mindset of someone who would think that this is the right thing to do. Because I think only when you address the arguments that they're actually making 
uh, that they find persuasive and other people in their culture find persuasive, do you really have the tools to be able to answer those arguments? Uh, it's very easy to sit around with a, with a bunch of free speech activists and just think, well, these people are crazy. Um, we don't need to address their arguments, but you're never going to persuade anyone if that's what you're doing. Um, so I think it's very cool. I think it's all very interesting. Well, we'd like to hear that. Jimmy Wales thinks it's cool. That's good. <laughs> I will put that on our banners. Um, the, the selection bias problem, as social scientists call it, we're very conscious of, so we're trying to address it by the multilingualism, mm -hmm. which already is a big breakthrough. If yes. you've gone into Urdu and into Hindi, by the way, mm -hmm. um, and then by reaching out to people from those communities and getting them to comment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important uh, to do that. Um, and, to, and to bring in, as you, as you have here, uh, you know, you've, you've got your uh, quite liberal uh, uh, Islamic scholar who yet would still make it illegal to insult religion. Uh, so, you know, having him, if you can persuade him to participate, um, at least in the form of writing essays for people to respond to and to think about, uh, I think that's really uh, incredibly valuable. And it may require a certain outreach um, on, in an ongoing basis to to bring people in to represent certain points of view. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Anyone, actually, who is prepared to participate in a <laughs> conversation in, on terms of robust civility. Mm -hmm. Now, Jimmy, if we can drill down a bit on knowledge. First of all, we allow no taboos in the discussion and dissemination of knowledge. We originally said uh, in the pursuit of knowledge, and then we realized that actually we do have taboos in the pursuit of knowledge, for example, experiments on live human beings. Mm. It's for very good reasons a taboo. Um, you have the chance to vote. Would you vote yes on that one? Uh, yes. Very good. Glad to hear it. <laughs> I, seem, I seem to have pre-clicked your box, but oh, that's, that's all right. my account. Now. Yes. Now. The question is then, of course, what that means. We have a wonderful piece by Aisha Kadioglu from Istanbul talking about how growing up in a country which has so many taboos on the pursuit of knowledge actually, as she puts it, perpetuates immaturity, treats people as children. We have a couple of interesting case studies which I'll come to. But since, in a sense, the free online discussion and dissemination of knowledge is absolutely at the core of what Wikipedia is about. Mm -hmm. Let me push you on a couple of issues. Sure. When we first spoke about this a year ago, you said the really controversial things on the Wikipedias, plural, have been images. Mm -hmm. Could you say a bit more about that? Uh, yeah. So. Um Within Wikipedia, we, uh, you obviously we end up with loads and loads of images. And uh, just to, to focus on one in particular, uh, the, the question would be, what about uh, images of uh, Muhammad? Uh, and so it, as it turns out, in, uh, uh, throughout history, there have been artworks uh, depicting Muhammad. But they're actually quite rare. Uh, within the Islamic tradition and certainly within a very broad segment of uh, the Islamic uh, world, uh, they're quite taboo and in fact uh, would be illegal in certain places and uh, definitely something that people find um, 
well, they find it worthwhile to send me email complaining about anyway. Um, <laughs> and so it's... Uh, You've had a few. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We've had many, many, many. It's a, it's, we actually have a standard template in response because it comes in every day. Um, and in fact, uh, one of the things that is interesting is the way the community uh, has dealt with the issue and in fact is dealing with the issue today. Um, certainly, I, I obviously have the most expertise about the English Wikipedia because I read it and work in it. Um, and in the English Wikipedia, there's been a very interesting debate raging recently about the number of images that we have in the article uh, about Muhammad. So we have the article about Muhammad and then you can go down the page. Uh, and it turns out uh, at my last count, uh, we could probably call it up here and count very quickly, but there were about half of the images on the page uh, were depictions of Muhammad. And a new argument has emerged which has caught the attention of uh, many people in the community to say, are we actually in fact misleading the reader uh, into thinking that this kind of image is quite common in the Islamic world when in fact you really have to dig them up uh, to find them. Uh, and so that is an interesting new argument because it suggests that perhaps we shouldn't have so many of them, not for reasons of no longer offending the sensibilities of some people who write to complain, but because we're giving a misleading impression. And one of the reasons that's happened, uh, in my view, is that the community reacting very negatively to various uh, things in the news um, have often wanted to put them in just to show that we can do it. Uh, but I don't think it's always the best reason to do something. Can I just follow up on that? Because we did a bit of uh, research on this, on our 13 languages. And here's the story. Have images of the Danish cartoons. Uh, the Danish cartoons, right. Uh -huh. English, Spanish, Russian, and Farsi, interestingly because, subject to correction from the Professor of Persian, um, uh, or other Middle Eastern experts, there's not the same taboo in the Shiite tradition right, on correct. the image. So the images there are on Farsi. Link but no image, the French and German sites, which seems on the face of it a not unreasonable position. Mm -hmm. You're not immediately confronted with them, yes. but one click and you're there. More problematic, no image, and no link, Portuguese, for some odd reason, Arabic, Urdu, and Turkish. It is no accident, um, as Marxists used to say, Arabic, Urdu, and Turkish. Mm. No image and no link, although the <coughs> Turkish site does give you a nice Danish flag. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, what do you think about that? Because my view would be that the problem is really the no link. Mm. that even the interested person on that site can't. Not the no image, but the no mm -hmm. link. Yeah, my, my view is that um, the, the, the right way to approach the question is to think about what is the most effective means to educate the reader. Uh, certainly for the English Wikipedia, if someone came and said we should remove the image completely and not even have a link to it, I would argue that in, in terms of a uh, a thoughtful study in the privacy of your own home to say what is this issue about, why were there riots, why have people died over these cartoons, um, you really need to look at them uh, because uh, otherwise you may have a completely wrong idea of what's actually in the cartoons. You might think, uh, depending on your, your uh, initial prejudices, you, you might think that the cartoons are much, much worse than they actually are or you might think they're much milder than they actually are. 
And so I think it is important that people be able to access the, the, the cartoon um, in order to uh, uh, assess the situation. At the same time, uh, I, would say, I, mean, I would argue this for, for loads of different images, uh, it's not necessary to confront the reader with them right. and sort of ram it down their throats. You've right. got the entry. So my, my view uh, is somewhere, actually, there, there's, a, there's a third option uh, other than have it uh, or, or have a link to it, which is to have it but have it hidden by a JavaScript. So it's hidden uh, and it just says, if you want to see the image, click here. That way, people who feel, um, actually, some of the people who I've really uh, given my uh, perspective on the world really want to reach uh, might be a young person who feels uh, quite torn about this. I, I feel like maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I am going to uh, offend Allah if I look at something, and yet I want to understand this issue. So I want to be able to go and read the entry. I feel like I'm okay to do that. And it's much more comforting if I know, okay, I can go and read the whole issue without having to actually look at the cartoons. Maybe at the end of that reading, I might just be curious enough to go, what, what does it look like and say? And so I think that's a, that's a very important issue. It's also an important issue when we think about um, trying to preemptively prevent uh, aggressive filtering of the content. I think it's a much uh, easier case for censors to make if they say, the reason we have to block uh, this page is that anybody might stumble upon it and see something that they find horrific. And instead, if it's hidden behind a link, it makes it harder for them to make that argument. Now, that's assuming that censors actually need to make a nuanced argument, which often isn't the case. Um, but it's, I think it's valuable for us to provide, uh, the way I would present it, it's valuable for, it's valuable for us to provide tools uh, that allow users to control their own experience, uh, because I think that's the most conducive to uh, broad education. Now, you mentioned filters. Um, in my conversations at the Wikimedia Foundation last year, uh, or indeed earlier this year, no, no, last year, I, I, um, I gather you're working on an image filter for Wikipedia. Uh, yes, work is proceeding on that. It's, uh, so what categories will be filtered by whom and how? That is still all what's being worked on. Uh, okay, so tell us why, why you feel you need an image filter. Um, so I think that the primary reason is uh, more or less what I just said. Uh, and, and I'm going to say here, I am stating my own personal views. Uh, the foundation, uh, I think, is still working towards a, sort of a corporate view on the issue. Uh, and within our board, there's a lot of discussion about what's the right way forward. And with the community, uh, there's a, a much broader discussion um, with lots of different views. So I would say we haven't fully reached a consensus on the issue. So I'm not speaking for either the board of the foundation or for the Wikipedia community in this case, I'm just giving my view. So my view is it's really important that we allow users to um, have tools available to control their own experience. Uh, and there's a lot of different reasons for this, and some of them are quite surprising because uh, there's sort of an intuitive knee-jerk reaction that if you're in favor of some sort of filtering, you must be pro-censorship, and that really isn't the case here. I'm quite anti-censorship. At the same time, I can tell you, I travel all over the world, and I do my work wherever I happen to be, in airports or so on. Um, and certainly, um, a part of my work in Wikipedia is dealing with uh, arguments and controversies and fights. And one thing that people love to fight about is um, images uh, in Wikipedia. And some of them are images that m might be quite shocking uh, to people in this room. Uh, these can be... Uh, uh, graphic images of violence uh, surrounding uh, war, 
for example, um, where you know they're quite disturbing images to look at. So, so what are you going to be your category? And so, uh, oh, so for me, um, I think that we already uh, have a category system. Uh, images are categorized uh, in 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 the Wikipedia uh, namespace um, in, in loads and loads of different ways. My view is that w we should have uh, the ability for the user to turn on and off categories as they wish. Uh, at the same time, if you just say, well, look, you can go into a massive tree structure of categories of, with 100,000 categories and turn off the ones you want, that's not a very practical tool. We should have the ability to override that, but there would be certain categories. Um, you know, I, what I would set for myself uh, when I'm working in a public place is quite a strict filter. Uh, to say, look, anything that might be, you know, uh, violence, sexuality, anything that you, you might not feel comfortable uh, with your uh, grandmother looking over your shoulder or your uh, six-year-old child looking over your shoulder, um, I'll just take that and filter it. But what I want is that what that does is just collapse it behind uh, a, a JavaScript click. So if I visit an entry that has some kind of image that uh, has in any conceivable way could be potentially offensive, it's just hidden and all I have to do is one click and it it pops up. That's not a tool to prevent people from seeing things. It's a tool uh, to allow me to control my viewing experience. As examples of why this might be useful, um, lots of people in uh, very conservative countries, and we know this from our access logs, uh, one of the people, one of the things people are very interested in in all cultures around the world is sex. Uh, topics related to sexuality. They're not just looking for porn. If they're looking for porn, in, uh, Wikipedia is, you know, you're doing it wrong if you're looking at Wikipedia. <laughs> um, there's plenty of porn on the internet, right? So uh, instead, what people are coming to us for is um, education. Uh, education, perhaps health education, perhaps um, education about sensuality and sex and uh, really understanding more about it. And I, I want people to be able to do that. I want, um, you know, if, if you are in a place uh, where uh, you're concerned about, you know, you're a teenage boy or a teenage girl and you are in a conservative household in um, Saudi Arabia. Uh, I think it'd be kind of useful to turn those images off uh, while you're surfing. So if your mom looks around the corner, she doesn't see what you're looking at and you get in huge trouble. I think there are lots of people who have perfectly legitimate reasons for saying, look, I, I, I want to be able to hide these images and I want to be able to turn them on and off as I see fit. And I think it's not that difficult to do. I'm, I'm sure there'll be lots of questions on that. Let me just touch on a couple of other areas and then open it up. One is deletion. You delete a lot on Wikipedia. Mm. Yes, we do. We um, lots of uh, some people object to that. There was actually a movement of people trying to save mm. uh, articles from the memory hole. Yes, yes. So the, the, the deletion debates in Wikipedia are um, sort of a place where there's ongoing, continuous uh, discussion. It goes on and on and on and on. Um, and some of it's fairly simple and not controversial. You know, if somebody uh, creates an article <clears throat> that's a complete hoax and is actually completely false, and we discover that it's false, uh, there's no real controversy about saying, well, we should delete this. It's completely misleading, and, and there's no reason to have it. Or if it's complete nonsense, which happens with some regularity as well. Uh, those, those ones are easy. Uh, other areas where we would delete entries would be uh, entries that are about topics that we have no real ability to verify the information. Uh, so a typical example might be a, um, a rock and roll band in uh, Manchester, let's say, 
uh, and they've played, um, you know, two gigs, uh, one in mom's basement and one at the high school dance. Um, there have been no press coverage. There's nothing, you know, there's no way we can confirm or deny the information in it. And we would say, look, that's just not uh, notable is the, is the term we would use. We can't verify it. Other people can't check it. So that, that would be deleted. Beyond that, um, that's, those are, you know, that's the bulk of what uh, gets deleted, things that are not verifiable. Um, uh, other examples, you know, people love to come up with uh, new concepts in political science that they just made up themselves and uh, new terminology and they'll write a nice long essay about it, uh, usually a slightly rambling long essay about it. And, you know, often you'll see quite, uh, quite good-natured um, people who, who say, okay, right, I'm, I'm doing research, I'm trying to find more information about this concept. Uh, but I don't see it. So um, who decides what is a bona fide concept in political science? Um, well, so what, what happens is people, uh, there's uh, articles for deletion, so you can nominate something for deletion, uh, and then there's a, uh, a period of time when people can weigh in uh, pro or con. Uh, what's interesting about this kind of a vote within Wikipedia is um, it's not really a vote. We used to call it votes for deletion, but people said it's not really a vote. It is a discussion and debate. And what happens at the end of that discussion and debate, an administrator goes through, and, and the administrators are elected from within the community, and they read the debate, uh, and they make a decision based on that. And typically, what they do is they count up the number of votes, because people will say either delete, keep, merge, uh, there's different options. Uh, but they also consider the quality of the arguments um, and, and things like that. So uh, it, it typically, what if, if they see, you know, 80% votes to delete, um, even if they think it should be kept, they would find they would be quite cautious about declaring that to be a keep, even if they think the arguments are better. But if it's, uh, you know, 50-50 and, you know, uh, let's say eight people voted, four people point out that it's a complete hoax uh, and there's absolutely no evidence that it exists at all, and four people who, by the way, just signed up in the last day all say, it's awesome, it's awesome, it's awesome, it's really awesome. They're not going to go, well, it's 50-50, I think we'll keep it, you know. They'll say, okay, well, nobody, the, the ones who voted to, to keep it didn't offer an argument whatsoever. Uh, there's some cogent arguments for deleting it, so we'd go ahead and delete it. And then if you don't like the deletion decision, because in Wikipedia there's always another thing to do, uh, you can take it to deletion review. Uh, and right. it basically gets uh, relisted. Uh, and it, you sort of ask people to say, hey, we, let's get some wider attention on this and um, you know, re-examine. Was this closed correctly? Are there new arguments? Are there, is there, are there new things? And even as a part of the deletion process, people often, uh, an article is posted for deletion, it'll get a few deletion votes, and then somebody will say, hey, wait, hold on, actually, I know a lot about this topic. Uh, I've got, I'm gonna, you know, if you could just hold on a day, tomorrow I'm gonna write this huge thing, and you'll see there's loads of sources, it's actually perfectly valid. And then the administrators will read that and go, oh, okay, well, we'll just hold on and, and see what's happening. So I think it's a, it's a fairly reasonable process, and people get um, agitated about it at times. Uh, but actually, when you go through, and you, if you take a look at the last 40 deletions at any time, um, I personally find uh, even, you know, sometimes I get annoyed because something got deleted, and I'm like, oh, how could they delete that? And then I go, oh, well, actually, it's a pretty good argument for deletion. Um, uh, it's, it, I think most people would say uh, the decisions are fairly reasonable. I'm going to part but just mention a whole other area which links to deletion 
um, a colleague of ours, Victor Meyer Schoenberger, in this university, published a book called Delete, The Virtue of Forgetting in the Digital Age. And he argues, and indeed soon the EU may be arguing, that, that there is a right to forget mm. or right to be forgotten, that you shouldn't constantly for the rest of your life be reminded of what you did yeah, so when you were 17. Uh, I'll give a good example of that. So one of the areas where deletion debates uh, are important, uh, and in fact a lot of uh, the, the really tough work in Wikipedia goes on around what we call a BLP. We have lots of jargon, unfortunately, within our community, but a biography of a living person. And one of our uh, principles for biographies is uh, BLP1E. It's another buzzword. A biography of a living person who's notable for only one event. Um, so the, the, there's different varieties of this, but what we're really looking for... Can you give us an example? Uh, yeah, we, uh, an example... Well, they usually get deleted, and then I usually forget who they are because they were only notable for one event. Um, but the example, you know, a, um, uh, an innocent uh, passerby who somehow got drawn into uh, the news. And uh, you know this can happen. Uh, I'll give you, here's a perfectly good example. Uh, the captain of this Italian uh, yeah. boat. Yeah, he's a BOP1E. He's a BOP1E. And in general. And something else as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in general, what we're going to say about a guy like this is cover the event, not the person. It's okay to mention his name in relation to the event, but you cannot, we cannot write a biography of this man because we don't know enough about him. Uh, we're not likely to know enough about him, except he was a captain and his boat sank and dot, 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 we'll see what happens, um, was detained and may end up in jail over it. Um, unless, of course, he, he, you know, gets out of jail and sinks another boat and then it starts to be... <laughs> BLP2E, and, um, but in general, we, we, when we look at those kinds of things, we say, look, for many cases like this, uh, eventually, whatever happens to him, he may be innocent, he may be guilty, but eventually, he's really is going to prefer to fade into obscurity. Uh, I don't think he's going to be eager to be uh, in Wikipedia and have a full biography, given that there's only one thing that anybody's ever going to know about him. Uh, and so I think what we, we, we will end up doing in this case, and I haven't actually looked to see if there's any discussion about this, is we're going to have a fabulous article in great detail about the event. His name will be there. He, it's, part of his, uh, it's part of history. But what we're not going to do is have an article about him, unless it turns out he's much more interesting than, than you would suppose. I look forward to reading that article. Um, right, I want to throw it open for discussion, and so just before I do so, let's come back to the Ugly Sisters, Soap and Pepper. Yes. Tell us, if you will, why you see this as such a threat to the global dissemination of knowledge that for the first time, I think this is right in the history of English Wikipedia, yeah. you had yes. a 24-hour blackout? Yes, first time ever, yeah. So, uh, Sopa and Pepper, I like the, the not Pippa, uh, the Ugly Sister. Uh, it's, um, so there's, uh, so just to set the context, one of the things uh, that is, has been uh, quite wonderful uh, US policy for a few years now um, has been to uh, argue firmly against censorship uh, in various states around the world, uh, even go so, going so far as to funding projects to create software um, or to support projects that already existed. Right. 
to help people who live in countries where there's DNS filtering uh, get around those blocks so that people can access the information they want. Um, great, I think that's fabulous work, uh, wonderful. And so it's quite ironic then that uh, this bill, uh, at least in some versions, contemplated setting up DNS filtering in the US and also had a provision uh, banning uh, methods for technical circumvention, uh, i.e. the very projects that the US government is funding. So uh, that's you know, uh, a red flag before a bull uh, in front of the internet community, particularly our community. Um, the, there's a lot wrong with these bills. Uh, the, the reason, uh, the stated reason, which I think is actually the reason, uh, here is to try to combat piracy. Uh, there's a lot of money that flows into Washington from Hollywood. Uh, Hollywood is very concerned about the problems of piracy. Um, they are, unfortunately, in my view, quite prone to exaggerating the size of the problem. Uh, one convenient way to exaggerate the size of the problem is you uh, get some reasonable estimate for how many people have downloaded a movie for free, illegally, <clears throat> and then you multiply that times the retail price of a DVD, uh, and you claim you lost that much money. Uh, well, if you're an economist, you know the amount of consumption at price zero is much higher than the amount of consumption at um, $35, and so uh, it's not reasonable to think they would have sold all those copies. Uh, it is reasonable, though, to think that they would have sold some of those copies and that, in fact, piracy has cost them some money, but they tend to overstate the total amount. Um, my view is that the, the solution to this can't start with uh, thinking about ways of censoring the Internet, thinking about ways to block access to things. First of all, uh, it's completely hopeless. Um, the, the Internet, is ju it just doesn't work that way. There are so many ways that people can get access to this information. Um, it can be underground, it can be on websites, it can be everywhere. Uh, that that approach uh, isn't really going to be economically sensible. Uh, one of the things I think that we should see instead is that Hollywood needs to wake up to the global world and wake up to the digital world. And I'll just give a personal example. My daughter is 11 years old and an absolute super geek. She's so cool and awesome. And uh, as it turns out, I've been completely remiss as the father of a super geek in one aspect of her education. She's never seen Star Wars. Uh, she's not seen a single Star Wars movie. I mean, it's horrible. I'm more of a Trekkie myself, so she's seen as low as Dr. Trek. I mean, uh, of Star Trek. And uh, actually, she got me into Doctor Who, I'm happy to say. I've just watched uh, six, episodes, six seasons of Doctor Who um, <laughs> this year. Um, and um, what, um, but she's never seen Star Wars. So, okay, for Christmas I bought her, uh, here in London, uh, she was over for Christmas, I, I bought her Blu-ray DVDs of uh, the digitally remastered, because I've got a nice big TV, so. And I thought, oh, this is great, and we'll watch it on the plane on the way home. I'm taking her back to Florida. And we stick the disc in her computer, and uh, her computer doesn't have Blu-ray. Okay. Well, that's annoying enough, but uh, then I think, okay, well, she can just take them home and watch it at her mother's house. Oh, wait, actually, the, the DVD's region encoded, so she can't watch it uh, in America. I can't rip it on my computer. We have no way of watching these discs. They're, I mean, I just bought <laughs> Frisbees, you know? Um, and so I thought, well, I, I don't care. I mean, I, uh, I met George Lucas, and I love him. I love Star Wars, and I'll give the man even more money because he's not rich enough. And <laughs> so I... 
thought, I'll just go on iTunes and I'll just buy the first movie uh, so we can watch it on the plane on the way home. iTunes doesn't have it. So here's a customer who I paid for it already. All I want to do is watch it with my little girl. I'll pay for it again. You don't sell it there. I, I was stymied. Um, and of course, my, my daughter's looking at me with sort of a funny look like, Dad, why don't we just go on BitTorrent? Um, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't, I don't go on BitTorrent. Uh, and uh, although, but you, you, you feel morally tempted when you go, I already paid for the freaking thing and I can't so, watch so, it. So, 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 so give us a conversation in your head when she says, as it were, go on BitTorrent. Um, oh, I'm, I'm just, a, I'm just uh, all, all I can think of is the headlines in the lawsuit, Jimmy Will sued for stealing. <laughs> I just can't, even if I'm tempted, it's just like, no, I don't pirate and... Uh, so it's not the still small voice of conscience so much as... The, not after I already paid, you know? <laughs> uh, I, I don't, I, I mean, it's really hard to morally condemn someone uh, in that set of circumstances where due to their restrictions, I can't use what I paid for already. Now. Having said that, um, I, I think that even if Hollywood becomes more digitally savvy, they stop with all the restrictions, they make it easier to buy the content that you want, uh, there will still be some piracy. I don't think it is the complete answer. Uh, and I also should point out that in addition to Hollywood, the, another thing that is actually targeted by these bills I think is, is um, something that's a little bit different in certain ways and not so many, um, it's not pure internet. Uh, and this is websites selling uh, counterfeit goods. Uh, so counterfeit goods can, can range as far as counterfeit medicines, which may kill you um, or anyway, not cure you, um, to counterfeit uh, fashion <coughs> items. Um, and that's a big problem online. Somebody, you know, cre creates uh, fake handbags and sells them online. And uh, you can understand uh, why the producers are quite agitated about this and think it's really not fair and that something should be done about it. Um, but one of the things, there's an old uh, joke that, uh, you know, something must be done. This is something, therefore we must do this. Uh, it's not, not a valid argument. Um, and in and, this and case... And, and the fundamental problem with the, with the bills is that... The, the problem of overbreadth, isn't it? That they're the so problem of overbreadth. They're, they're quite uh, overbroad, and in fact, um, it's, I, I've been actually quite surprised, uh, maybe because I've been spending loads of time outside the US and I travel all over the world, but how strongly uh, nationalistic the rhetoric of the, the Congress is about this. Uh, they talk quite firmly about American jobs and these are rogue foreign sites because they know within the US there's a perfectly valid, uh, it's not perfect in every way, but the Digital Millennium Copyright Act has provisions mm -hmm. whereby if you, uh, you know, if you upload um, Star Wars to YouTube, uh, you know, the, the studio can notify, hey, you've got some copyrighted content. YouTube says, okay, we'll pull it down. Uh, there's counter notification if you say, no, I have the right to put it up. That whole system works reasonably well. Uh, and it doesn't work going outside the border of the U.S. necessarily. Not every country has a notice and take down uh, provision. Uh, so you've distracted me. I forgot where I was going with that. Yeah. Um, I mean, let's, I think at that point, open it up. Although it is interesting, there's a famous, um, I think it's a Supreme Court judgment which oh, says that the I'm First sorry. Amendment I, I know involves... What I was going to say. Okay, say oh, I'm sorry. Say it. Which is that 
in their rhetoric around this, and, and I think it's an attempt to sell it to the taxpayers, they talk about American jobs and American intellectual property and rogue foreign sites. And I just think these are global companies uh, who are, uh, you know, who if they could find a cheap Chinese Tom Cruise, uh, they would replace him in a heartbeat. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's really about American jobs. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, what I was about to say was that I think there is a Supreme Court judgment which says that the First Amendment rights include the right to hear foreign speech, specifically. Yes. It's yes. not just the right to hear what's said inside That's the United right. States. Yeah. Jimmy, thank you very much. Um, I want to say a few things before thanking our main guest. Um, first of all, um, I am told that the, that the interpretation of what Shirin Ebadi said uh, was perhaps a touch too sharp, um, that she was not saying in the original Farsi that insulting religion should be criminalized. She was saying, I'm told that under international conventions, one should avoid producing hate speech. Um, secondly, I didn't answer the question from Twitter about what tangible action. Um, and in a way, I have to say the answer is none. Because I do want to emphasize that this is not a campaigning project. There are really outstanding free speech campaigning projects out there, many of them represented in this room, Index, Pen, Article 19. This is a project in a university. It's a project for research, for analysis, for discussion, for debate in a structured way with robust civility. I want to emphasize that again. Um, I notice my old friend Edward Lucas somewhere up there has just tweeted um, that this was more about Wikipedia than the launch of a sober academic project. Well, this in a way is to Simon Head, which is precisely the challenge of a project like this, is to combine the traditional authority and expertise such as you find in a great university, with the new kinds of communication and discovery of knowledge that you do find online by methods like crowdsourcing. And actually, if you're exploring norms and principles of free speech, if we're going to try and get people to agree on them, you've got to listen to the people. So between, Simon, between essay and mayhem, in your terms, or in my terms, between expertise and openness is precisely the challenge that such a project faces. And I think lots of good projects on the internet, including Wikipedia, by the way, which spells a lot of time trying to keep quality, um, are going to wrestle with. But that's where we are if we're going to seize those opportunities. Let me um, say a few thanks before closing. Um, we do have to thank lots of parts of this university, from the Clarendon Laboratory to St. Anthony's College, where the project is based from the social sciences division to legal services to public affairs to computing services to the Bodleian Library, which, as I mentioned, is digitally archiving the site. Numerous colleagues who've contributed to this project, and I think above all, are fantastic graduate students who are the backbone of this whole project, translating its content into the 13 languages of which they're native speakers, contributing lots of interesting cases, lots of interesting ideas. Uh, there are, I think, this sounds like Oxford self-congratulation, but there are relatively few universities in the world where you could get such a group together. They've been absolutely fantastic and continue to be. 
We'd like to thank all our funders and partners who are carefully listed on the website. I'd like to thank three people in particular, our wonderful online editor, Mariam Amidi, our web developer, Simon Dixon, who's written some path-breaking multilingual code, and the Darndorf program administrator, Judith Brune. Without them, this would never have happened. I would like to thank you all for coming and participating. You also outside this room on Cover It Live and Twitter and Sina Weibo. The future of the experiment will depend on you navigating that course between essay and mayhem. And finally, of course, last but not least, to thank Jimmy Wales, who in this extraordinary moment in the history of Wikipedia, uh, he was in Switzerland yesterday, I think, somewhere else tomorrow, has taken the time to come and share his extraordinary experience with us. You mentioned the BOP1E. I think that's right? BOP1E. BOP1E. You're certainly not a BOP1E. <laughs> but this was one great E for us. Thank you very much. Thank you.